about once a month or so I like to co-create a talk with you. So I'd like to do that tonight. I'd like us to make up a talk together. Um, and I think of it as um, one, one of the reasons why I'm, I really enjoy it these days, besides the fact that I've written a zillion talks and I'm, I get tired of writing talks, um, is also, especially as the group gets bigger, it's nice to have more input from people and hear what people are thinking about or what their interest is or what the cutting edge of your practice is or what's the most difficult part of your practice or where you're, where you're interested. Uh, where, where you're enlivened, or where, where your pulse is quickened by the practice, or, or what kind of plateau you hit, or what kind of difficulty you find. So I'd like you to reflect for a moment about that and think about, well, if, if you got to pick the talk tonight, what would you have me talk about? What would be the most important thing? And everybody has to come up with at least one thing. Because maybe I'll call on people who raise their hands, but maybe I'm going to call on you even if you don't raise your hand. <laughs> Just to see, what would you come up What What would you like me to speak to this evening? Emptiness, no self, and application to daily life. Did you see the secret? Pardon? Have you seen the secret? And have I seen the secret? No. I know the secret, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> So if I haven't seen it, you can't ask me the question. Okay. Should I go see it? <laughs> you don't know. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Is it is it on DVD or something? Okay. I'll, I'll, I like when people direct me somewhere. Um, the idea of non-attachment and impermanence in relationship to romantic relationships. Oh, I wonder why you're asking me that. <laughs> non-attachment and impermanence <laughs> in relation to relationship. <laughs> romantic. Okay. Living with fear? Living with fear. Better than dying with fear. Okay. A little louder. Compassion and the mechanism of compassion. How how does it work? In that case? I mean, I understand the thing, and I understand, but I'm curious about the mechanism. How it helps. 
how, how does it help you? How does it help the one who's compassionate? Okay. to emptiness. It's true. It's a good good question. Topic, attachment to emptiness. If we get your mind, if it's your mind, if you, while you meditate, you're looking, you're curious about how your mind works and where it goes. Who's Who's doing that? Who's looking? <laughs> Who's being mindful? Okay. How we devalue our moment to moment experience by focusing on other people's experience or loss. Uh huh. Okay. How we devalue moment to moment. Yeah, it's interesting that the topics are getting longer, they're more articulated. I start thinking, oh, you should give this part of the talk. How we devalue moment to moment uh, by focusing on others. Okay. Transforming the hindrances into allies and Transforming the hindrances. Time is short to relax. <laughs> Maybe one more. How, how to keep an open heart when there's so much suffering? Okay. Open heart with suffering. Okay. Okay. 
Um, let's start with the questions about emptiness. Let's, I think it's helpful first to define our terms. Um, so the first question was about emptiness, no self, daily life. Um, there, are two, there are two terms here that are important to be get familiar with. One is anatta and the other is shunyata. Anatta is the Pali term for um, what, what is best translated as not self, not self. Shunyata is pretty accurately translated as emptiness or, or insubstantiality, transparency. And they point to the same phenomena. They point to the same phenomena, but Anatta is pointing at it in a very personal way. That there's not actually a self here. There's not actually a, a, a thing here. There's not a, a, a person here in the way we generally take ourselves to be. Um, shunyata points at that same principle in everything. That everything is actually not exactly what it seems to be. That, you know, the table is comprised of all non-table material. The lamp is comprised of all lamp, non-lamp material. It's, everything is comprised of other things. And when we start to perceive this, when we start to see this, when we start to take it apart, it's really, it's, a de it's Buddhist deconstructionism, basically. <laughs> and I mean that quite, quite clearly in a very simple way. It just says, look a little more carefully at what we're taking to be a whole or something in its totality and begin to see that maybe it's not quite that. You know, it doesn't mean there's not a lamp here now. But there's not an eternal lamp. There's not an ongoing lamp that will last forever. There's not a lamp separate from the things that comprise a lamp. The wood, the paper, the electricity, the bulb, the glass of the bulb. And each thing, can, you can continue to deconstruct each part of it. Each part is made up of parts. And the same with the human being. So one of the principles, or one of the facets in which to look at our experience through are the facets of anatta and shunyata. And when we start to see reality through these facets, it starts to, it supports something that's very freeing. It supports the movement to let go or to not cling. Or, or another way we can say it is shunyata and anatta help us um, to come into alignment with the way things are, that nothing is permanent. There is no permanence in the world of conditioned reality of which we are part of that world of conditioned reality. Especially our bodies, which we're very identified with which we often take to be me. We take to be something permanent that's going to last forever, even though we know intellectually it won't. On a very un unconscious level, 
we really hold, and it's not even that we're doing it, it's just in place, that idea that this is me is very strong, very, it's a very deep idea. And it's important to be very respectful of our holdings or our attachments or maybe better, best word to use is identifications. To be very respectful of them. You don't have to get rid of them. What you're asked to do is start to be mindful and pay attention and contemplate reality and then see what you discover. And as you look, as we look, right, we will see, and you know, I've done this many times here, is, you know, if I start to deconstruct Eugene, right, it, it's pretty easy. Is Eugene, the hairs that are left on Eugene's head? You know, that won't be there soon enough, right? <laughs> right, they're, they're on their way out. So is that me? Or is it my fingernails that I keep cutting off? Or that me? No, that's not me. You know, or is it my spleen? Is that me? Bladder? Sometimes that feels like me, right? <laughs> or my brain? Is that me? You know, a lot of people think their brain is who they are. If I was to open this up and put it out there, you would say, oh, that's not Eugene. That's kind of yucky. <laughs> and in fact, if I started deconstructing what's here, first physically, of course, just started putting the toenails and fingernails and hairs from the head and hairs from the body, take the skin, put it down there, take all the flesh and put it down there, take the muscles, take the tendons, take the blood, take the urine, take the feces, take the, all the organs and throw it down there. Where's Eugene? Eugene's a mess. <laughs> we don't want to. We don't want to call that Eugene. You know, it's nice when you know, as long as I'm still keeping it halfway together. It's like okay. So, so, the this is a very simple way to consider, reflect on the idea of anatta. And then, of course, shunyata, which is everything, even scientifically, we know everything keeps, we can keep deconstructing everything now. And we know that, I can't remember what level, you know, there's the atoms and then the subatomic particles and the quarks and the this and that. And we know that they're actually mostly empty. All of that. All of that is empty. All of this is empty. Now, the paradox is, empty doesn't mean there's nothing here, right? I'm here, you're here, we're here. The, the lamp is here, the, the podium's here, the building's here. Empty doesn't mean there's nothing here. So it's not exactly a Western understanding of emptiness. It's more like if water one of the qualities of water is its wetness, right? You can't separate water from its wetness. Right? If you put your hand in water, it's wet. If you have conditioned reality, it's empty. It's just, it's just a quality of reality. It doesn't mean reality disappears. It's the same with anatta. It's just that there's not a... There's, it's not that there's... Um, 
It, it's that there's, there's no thing here. There's no ultimate thing here. There's no ultimate thingness to reality. And we mostly relate to reality as if there are things. Like, and, and we even relate to ourself as if we're a thing. We relate to our body as if it's a thing. And then other people, and there's something. There are a thing out there, and there are things everywhere. And you know, I mean, even that, it's, it's not, it's not, that's not a horrible thing to do. It's not a horrible, it's just kind of conventionally how people relate and how we relate. But it gets very interesting if we start to deconstruct that idea and, then, and that, those, that way of seeing that, that orientation towards reality starts to relax. And we start to lose the thingness of reality, and there's something more fluid here, there's something more alive, something totally impermanent. Somebody was asking about impermanence, I'll get to it in a minute, but there's something totally impermanent, but fluid and alive, and it's right here and it's now. It's not somewhere else. You're breathing it, you are it. The quote that I like is from Kalu Rinpoche. He says, there is a reality. You are that reality. When you understand this, you will see that you are nothing or anatta. You are empty. Um, but and be, uh, when you understand this, you'll see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. That's a really good summary of the teaching of shunyata and anatta. We will see that we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. It's not actually that it limits us, it frees us on the understanding of anatta and shunyata. Now, the question is about everyday life. So how do we relate to everyday life? What I've seen in, in my own practice and in people is that the deeper the realization of shunyata and anatta, that the more fully we engage in life, the more, un, the more wholeheartedly we can engage. There's not something in here we have to protect. There's not some little identity that we have to make sure we have to keep it separate from everybody or we have to protect it in some way. No, there's a, there's a different sense of reality starts to happen about who we are in relation to other people, in relation to one another much more a sense of we're here together rather than we're here separately. That there's something phenomenal happening. There's something magical happening. There is a reality. You are that reality. And then you see, oh, everybody else is that reality. And that reality is, is beautiful. That reality is magical. Mysterious. Buddha nature is the term that's given. But what is that? <laughs> Who knows what that is? Keep looking. Keep paying attention to your own heart and mind and then to the hearts and minds of others. Just even, I mean, even here, we have a group of people. Why are we all here? Right? Why are we all here? And at some level we could say there's all different reasons. There's 120 different reasons why you're here. But there's also some unity of why we're here. We're all here for one reason or another to 
explore suffering and freedom from suffering. We're here because we have suffered or are suffering and we get a glimpse or an intuition or a sense that the Buddha's path offers something about freedom from suffering. I don't know how I got here, but it's, it's always a good thing to say. So in daily life, um, the less that I'm totally identified with Eugene as a separate thing and these other people out there as separate things, the more there's openness. There's more a sense of acceptance. The more accept a sense of um, simply being present for the moments of life, for the reality of other people and myself, whatever that, however that phenomena constitutes. And it's if you look at somebody like the Dalai Lama, look at their attitude. Look at their presence as they go through life. Look at his presence. He's a great example. He doesn't go through life. See this, and the confusion, and I hope I get to this within the next part about non-attachment and permanence in relationship. The confusion, the idea is emptiness means we're aloof or somehow distance, distant. And it's a confusion of emptiness with a kind of... Um, uh, this the attachment to emptiness. Uh, it's a kind of um, false emptiness or false detachment. Um, it's using emptiness as a defense against actually making contact with people. And that's where the attachment to emptiness comes in. The attachment is people say, oh, it's all empty, so it doesn't, if you feel bad, it doesn't matter. You know, or whatever happens, it doesn't matter. No, things actually do matter. They matter very deeply, very profoundly. This story, here's a Zen story that maybe epitomizes this. A Zen teacher who teaches that everything is empty. And he teaches this to his students. And he, you know, the world is an illusion, is one of the metaphors. It's a dreamlike world we live in. And of course, it is a dreamlike world we live in. And then the Zen master's son dies, and he's grieving, he's weeping, he's wailing, he's bereft as one would be if one's child dies. And his students come up and say, well, well wait, you, you taught us that everything is empty, the life is an illusion, why are you weeping, why are you crying? And, he, and through his tears he says, this is a very profound illusion. that it doesn't actually take us away from life, the emptiness. It becomes it quite possibly even more poignant. Even more, we're more sensitive, more touched by life because we see how temporary it is, how, how impermanent it is, how beautiful and magical it is. The beautiful possibility of human beings you know, we spend so much time, way too much time, focusing on the suffering of human beings, especially in the news. Way too much time. There have been wars forever. Forever. And will be, if probably, if there's human beings. How much time do we focus on all the amazing art that's been created in the history of humanity? All the amazing music. All the amazing theater and dance and knowledge and science. The whole history of humanity is riff with this 
beautiful um, flowering of the creativity and intelligence and love of human beings. Let's, let's make sure to pay some attention to that also. So the attachment to emptiness is not real emptiness. Who asked me that? Somebody, yeah. It's a really important question. The, um, my teacher would talk about it as, um, well, no, I won't go to, um, I'll go to the Dalai Lama who would say that if, if, let's put it this way, if emptiness is not full, not totally full with compassion, it's not true emptiness. And that's, that's a good way we could think about the paradox. Emptiness is not empty. Emptiness is full of life. Emptiness is, is totally full. It's not attached. It's not reifying life. It's not concretizing it. It's not solidifying life. It sees life for what it is, fluid, uh, dreamlike, uh, uh, ungraspable ultimately. That's what emptiness means. It's ungraspable. Have you seen anything in this world that you can actually really hold on to? Is there anything? Our grasping is the suffering. Our attempting to hold is the suffering. And it's not suffering because we're bad or even because we're... There's something wrong with us. It's just a misperception of reality. We can't hold on to anything. And so all of practice, slowly, carefully, sometimes quickly, but for most of us, we're bleeding, what's called bleeding horses, the horses that need the whip to move. Slowly, it's, it's a Buddhist metaphor, but there's four kinds of horses. There's one where you don't have to do anything and the horse goes. There's the other, you just show them the whip and they go. There's a third kind is when you have to, you have to hit them and then they go. And then there's the rest of us. <laughs> right? That it takes some suffering to really open our eyes. To really have us turn and look very carefully at what is going on here. Why are we suffering? What is our confusion? And then as we begin to do that, letting go starts to happen. So daily life, the attachment to emptiness, really, I, I think the best evaluation about emptiness is to see if it's full or not. If it's, if it's a dry emptiness, if it's a distant emptiness, the other story I like to tell is from, I believe it was, I won't say who the Zen master is, but, um, but there was a couple uh, who was practicing with the Zen master in the 60s. This is a true story. And um, the guy was, he was, you know, people have definitely strong experiences and it can be very pronounced, a sense of emptiness, a sense of, oh, there's like nothing here. That can be a very profound and for at times ongoing experience, like, whoa, it's just all empty. And so he was having this experience, guy, and he's married and he was getting less and less uh, related to his wife. He was just starting, he was just kind of, oh, I just want to be in the emptiness. I want to be in the emptiness. And so they went on the sashin, and on the sashin you would get a koan, you know, what's the, hand, what's the sound of one hand clapping? And then you have to come in every day and tell the teacher your answer, and of course they just, your answers are wrong generally for a long time. And um, 
So the wife told the teacher what was happening. And so he gave them a koan. The koan was, how do you find the Buddha while making love? How do you find the Buddha while making love? And during the retreat, three or four times a day, they would have to go off and practice. <laughs> and <laughs> this is a true story. And, and so the people sitting in the retreat are getting more, you know, gaunt and serious and sitting. And, and they're coming in, they're more rosy and alive and happy. And, you know, and, and it taught the man something about emptiness. Emptiness is not detachment. In fact, not, and maybe the, the real clarification is non-attachment is different from detachment. And I, I, I'll confess to this. When I first started practicing, I would wield my emptiness. Really, I would, it, was, it, was, it was immature. And I would wield it. I would definitely wield it in relationship with my girlfriend. And I would, it was like, oh, why are you having all those messy feelings, right? You know, just go sit. Would you, when, you're, when you clarify that, come talk to me. Oh my God. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm confessing. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. But, uh, no, I learned. I learned. But, but that's a defensive way that the Dharma can be used at times. Because anything can be used in the defense of our personality. You know, there was some emptiness, but there wasn't enough anatta. <laughs> Anyhow. So, okay, I think enough emptiness. And then, there's one more. Who's being mindful? <laughs> there's two answers to that. You are, and you aren't. <laughs> you know, there's some part of us that we... I'm not even sure how to say it. That we instigate, that we invoke to to begin being mindful. We say, okay, I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna pay attention. So and then I start paying attention to my body and breath, and da, 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 and, and that's that's fine. That's a really good way to go. Start there. That's a fine way to start. And then at a certain point, somewhere in your practice, you know, a few months or a few years or ten years in, whatever, whenever it feels right, or you get curious, turn the mindfulness to who's being mindful. And then you'll see you aren't doing it. It's doing itself somewhat. Mindfulness is being mindful. Mindfulness is a capacity. We're seeding that capacity. And just like we seed a tree, you know, we plant the seed and we water it and we do all this stuff. It's, but we don't make the tree grow. The tree grows. And then at a certain point, we don't do anything. The tree even flowers. And then we, who's, who's doing the tree? So, so both answers are really true. We're doing it on a relative, in a relative, from a relative perspective. And then we're also not doing it. The other, the, the other way to think about who's, doing, who's being mindful is this. Mindfulness is a subset of awareness. Mindfulness is a subset of awareness, right? There's awareness, and then we learn how to focus the awareness. It's one way to talk about mindfulness. 
try right now try not being aware <laughs> don't be aware can you do that so, so who's being aware who's doing it You could just rest in that awareness and that would be great practice. But often we forget. And remember one of the definitions, one of the translations and definitions of sati, which we translate as mindfulness, is to remember. And so it's a kind of remembering. It's a function of remembering the present moment. Remember. As if we'd lost a part of ourselves and we remember we become whole in the present moment, with the present moment. It's why the present moment is so important. That we remember ourselves. We remember reality of which we are an expression of in the moment. So, um, so all of this... Um, is quite related to daily life and, of course, relationship. Right? One of the bases for the realization of anatta is, excuse me, for, yeah, for the realization of anatta is anicca. Anicca is the Pali word for impermanence. This is a, this is, impermanence is like an ocean. There's an ocean of understanding to be realized with anicca or impermanence or transiency or yeah there's another word insubstantiality um, um, there's a surface level that we all know everything changes right does anybody not know that everything's impermanent anybody here disagree with that idea Jürgen is that okay Okay, okay, thank you. Jürgen's my philosopher friend. He helps me. Um, so, so everything's impermanent. Right? That's the surface. But do we live our life as if that's true in our, in our, blood, in our bones, in our marrow, as they would say in Zen? How deeply do we know that truth, that everything's impermanent? What What's odd, paradoxically helpful, is that life keeps teaching us that truth. And often, it's a, to be honest, it's a painful truth. It's a painful reality for us. People we love leave, whether it's through death or through decision. Um, places we love, times of our life. Um, our own bodies are impermanent. It's a very powerful teaching. It's a very startling teaching to really let it sink in very deeply. And you'll he you hear me talking, everything goes, everything leaves, everything changes. That's, the, that's it from the negative side. From the positive, there's another side to impermanence though. Everything is arising now. Everything is appearing here. The poignancy or the beauty or the magic is also 
part of that impermanence. The, maybe we wouldn't be able to love as much if things weren't impermanent. Maybe it's part of the depth of our joy, the depth of our pleasure, the depth of our care, the depth of our love is partly because things are impermanent. It makes human life very poignant and very meaningful. And so when I think about impermanence in regard to relationship and romantic relationship, it's actually part of romantic relationship. It's actually when we really don't know if it's going to go or not at first, you know, it's really romantic. <laughs> right? I mean, let's be honest. After you've been with somebody six months or 15 years, it's a little different, right? It seems more permanent. Actually, part of the practice then is actually remember that it's not going to be permanent, even if you've agreed to live together till death do us part, because death will do us part. And so it, it's one of the things that enlivens the committed relationship as well as the uncommitted relationship. It's clearer in the uncommitted relationship often, or at the beginning of relationship. But, but really, as, especially in a committed relationship, it's one of the most beautiful parts is to actually see the impermanence of it. And not just in romantic, but with all of family, all of friends, co-workers, wherever we might be. I mean, one of the, one of the things about being a parent is, is that you're just constantly dealing with change that the person your son or daughter has been is not there the next day, the next week, the next year. It's a whole different, it, the change is so clear. It's so striking and it's beautiful. God, it's beautiful to see somebody grow up and mature as a human being. It can be, it can be difficult too. I don't, I don't want to just Pollyanna it. Um, and so you asked about both impermanence and attachment. You know, maybe there's no romantic relationship without some attachment. Maybe that's just part of the deal, part of the package. But what can happen in relationship, especially I think it makes it a little easier in committed relationship, but not necessarily. I think for some people maybe it works in, in uncommitted relationships too. I, I can't say exactly. I'll say a little more in committed. Just that um, we start to, one of the things that can happen is we can really start to discriminate the difference between attachment and love. They're, they're different. They're not the same thing. Love is love. It's not attachment. Attachment is attachment. And attachment generally has to do with wanting something from the other person for a variety of reasons but there's the simplest way and this is related to how we how we devalue the present moment by looking at others and looking out to others is generally part of what happens in romantic relationship is we're looking to be filled in some way that we feel unfilled or empty and this is not Buddhist emptiness this is existential emptiness this is just that kind of gnawing emptiness that can transform to Buddhist emptiness I would say the Buddha experienced this kind of existential emptiness and it's really why he went out and, and sought awakening 
And then he realized the true emptiness, the essential emptiness. But we all have this, and we all seek a certain kind of something, whether it's love or care or being seen or you know, being acknowledged in certain ways. We all, we all need that. The self, the small sense of self, needs that. Because it's, it's, it's a little bit of a house of cards, right? It's empty. So it's a very, it's a very um, interesting area to practice in because we're going to practice with romantic relationship. Most of us here in some form or shape. It depends on your age, how much you're going to practice in it, right? It tends to be more when you're younger and less when you're older. But every, all of us have already practiced in it, even if we hadn't come to practice at that point in our lives. So the important, most important thing is to use the principles of mindfulness so we can pay attention to what's love and what's attachment. What, what do we feel like is going to happen to us if we lose this person? And, and what's the truth of what will happen if we lose this person? And what happens if we let go and we stay together? How about that? What if two people decide to totally let go but to stay together? Even in a totally committed relationship, but let go. And see what that reality is. That could be really fun. And, the, and of course, I'm just going to expand it a little because it's really all relationship. Friendships. Fa familial. Collegial. To, to begin to look at where there's affection, where there's care, where there's kindness, where there's connection. And the difference between those and attachment. And again, parenting's a great place to look at to look at attachment. I mean, if you want your kid to be something or some way, it could be dukkha. <laughs> Dukkha's the third of the three characteristics, and the three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Dukkha is suffering or, or, or unsatisfactoriness, dis-ease, stress of any way, shape, or form. I think I should move on and get a couple more of these now. Let's see. Um, oh, I mentioned, I, since I mentioned this, how we practice, um, how we devalue the present moment by moment by looking at others, what they think of us, and things like that. Yeah, really, that's great to see that phenomena, to see how to study the self, to see how the self functions. Because the self, the general, our general sense of self, and this is not, is not something to be taken personally, <laughs> and it's not actually a mistake particularly, but it's just how the self functions. It functions from a sense of deficiency. It functions from a sense of lack. It's made up of ideas, images, beliefs, impressions, history. It's not... It's not, it's, it's, it's not really there in the way we take ourselves to be this self, this Eugene or this small sense of self. 
And so it will. It, it, it's always looking out for confirmation, even if it's introverted. Then it's quietly looking out for, you know, are they seeing me? How good I am, or how nice I am, or the right person, or how am I being evaluated? Or, or we're doing it unconsciously. We act with great bravado. We just expect everybody to love us and think we're great, and we're totally unconscious to what what's actually happening. That, that's how self functions in in its you know in the more dysfunctional sense or in the somewhat dysfunctional sense, and we can prop it up and shore it up and and there's some ways to work with it at times that are actually very important, very important and you know a co a cohesive sense of self is not a bad thing. It's most helpful if we understand that's not who we are in essence. That that's part of what comes with a psyche, is an ego structure. But that is not the center of the world. And that's a, it's a really big topic. But, but it's true, we turn away. When you say we devalue the present moment, we actually devalue ourselves. We devalue what's right here, what's already given to us, which is the whole Dharma is right here, sitting in our seats. And, and we just turn away. And it's not, and you don't, I don't want you to blame yourself or judge yourself or belittle yourself or condemn yourself. We want to see that we turn away because that's the beginning of not turning away. We'll turn away and then we turn back and turn away and turn back and turn away and turn back as many times as we need to. All of this is the Dharma. Even the small sense of self is part of the Dharma. There's nothing outside of the Dharma. So that's why we don't have to get rid of it. And we don't have to be in contention with it. We want to bring it into mindfulness. We want to see it. We want to be able to contemplate it and then see what, what's true. What's the truth in this moment? What's actually here in this moment? What's really alive in our experience right now? If you feel your body, if you feel your breath, if you feel your heart, if you feel your mind, not so much thinking about it, but coming into the whatever it is that's enlivening us here this moment. You know, there is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing, no thing. And being no thing, you are everything. Or as... as um, Dogen said, he said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self or to relax the identification with the self. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. I think we're going to probably stop there. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of these. I'll, I'll end with I'll, I'll end I'll leave you the end of that Dogen quote, which I often use, but I rarely give you the last few lines. So to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self, to let go of the self, to relax the identification. To forget the self is to awaken with all things. To awaken with all things is to drop off body and mind and to drop off the body and minds of others. 
no trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. Let's sit for a minute. To study the Buddha way is to be mindful of the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to awaken or be intimate with all things, each moment, now. To awaken with all things is to drop off one's body and mind and the body and minds of others. To not make things of oneself or others. No trace of enlightenment remains. And this no trace continues endlessly. May the fruit, blessings, goodness of our (coughs) practice here this evening, may we share them gratefully, gracefully, gladly, for the benefit of all. May the merit of our practice go out in every direction like ripples in water touching beings in this world and every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war and the suffering of division and the suffering of racism and the suffering of ignorance and the suffering of hatred, the suffering of greed, the suffering of confusion and avarice. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of attachment to that which we cannot grasp. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together, everyone, everywhere, every being. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.